Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's exciting to be able to be back together. Uh, we are continuing our Signs of Generosity series. And so um, what we like to do is the beginning of every ser- uh, sermon, kind of recapping for either people that are joining us for the first time in the series. If that's you, we're so glad that you're with us this morning. Or for some of you that maybe missed a week or two or three and you're, this is your first time, we want to make sure that we're all kind of reset and back on the same page. Uh, that way, when we move forward, we all have the, kind of the similar context. Uh, just so you know, um, the, a lot of the sermons they're all online that Art Gresham puts them up online um, within 24 hours usually. So you can always check them up if you're so inclined. You can check up online there and there's an archive of them as well. So with that said, we are in the Signs of Generosity series today. And, and kind of the subtitle for that is Calculating the Cost of Trusting God with Our Money. That recognizing that um, it's, it's, we need to kind of figure out what it looks like to do we really trust God with money? Do we trust God in all of our areas? And, and yet, specifically in the scripture, there are times in which he seems to especially delineate money as one of the largest struggles that we can face. And so with that in mind, we want to recap. The first week, we're using each one of these symbols, mathematical signs, to show us a truth about generosity. And so the first one we did was the equal sign. And that idea was that you cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. That you can't serve them both to the same degree. If you serve money with all that you have, it ends up driving us into poverty because we're always working and we're trusting something that, as Matthew 6 talks about, is is here are treasures here on earth. That's where the, the thieves can steal. That's where the moth can destroy. And so we look at this idea that if we pursue that, that can actually end up making us poor, either maybe we have financial money, but maybe our relationships are poor. Maybe there's poverty with, within the family and, and, and closeness there. Or maybe it does drive us to poverty because we're in so much debt that we can't ever get out of it. Yet, if we serve money, we recognize that it's out of Jesus's poverty that we can experience true riches, as 2 Corinthians 8 talks about. And so one, money provides what we hope to have future security, but Jesus and trusting in him and loving God through Jesus allows for true eternal security. You can't serve both. They are not equals. The next week we looked at the plus sign and the plus sign was this idea that because everything is owned by God, we must add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. So because everything is owned by God, we, the gifts that we've been given The talents, the abilities, those things that allow us to even make money in the first place are gifts that God has given us and that we have been entrusted with different relationships, financial abilities, uh, capabilities with skills and personality, whatever that is, we've been entrusted with things. And so because all of it's owned by God and it's loaned to us, we must add a stewardship mindset. And those, the add a stewardship mindset, what that means is that we accept responsibility for what God has given us. That's what the A stands for. That we, the D is the idea that we demonstrate accountability and we say, I'm accountable. I'm being held accountable for what you've given me. And here's what I want to give back to you, just like they did in the parable of the talents. And then the third D or the second D, the third letter is this idea of delighting in God's rewards that like the servants in Matthew 25 verse 21, we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come and enjoy, come and delight in your master's happiness. And so we recognize because everything is owned by God, we must add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. Now, last week, we spent some time looking at the divide symbol. And and, uh, the idea here was that we talked about tithes. We talked about offerings. We talked about the storehouse and bringing tithes into the storehouse, what that meant for Malachi 3. We dove into all that because the truth that we learned last week was that when we divide the best from the rest, 
We put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. You guys can say that 10 times fast if you want, Um, because I know I can't. So this is all from Malachi 3. In other types of the scripture, it it doesn't say to put God to the test, but Malachi 3.10 specifically says, God says, test me in this by providing and bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, and I will show you how I will provide for you. But also, as verse 12 says, that also the nations will call you blessed. So it's this idea that by dividing our best from the rest, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. Now, this morning, we're going to go use a subtraction symbol, and we're going we're gonna to look at the, the topic of debt. But before we do, let's take a moment to pray together and ask God to reveal what he has for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you that you are here in this place. We thank you that we can worship you through song, that we can worship you through taking communion, that we could worship you through giving of tithes and offerings, and now we can worship you through the opening of your word. So God, we pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a mighty way to each and every one of us, and that we would ha- have open eyes, ears, and hearts to what it is that you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before I go on and talk about the subtraction symbol, I do want to take a moment to uh, last week um, in this service, I I made a joke about how, you know, this idea of intentionality and um, the greater the intimacy we have with someone, the greater intentionality that we have when we give them something. So I talked about how, you know, for my anniversary for Steph, I wouldn't just put on a post-it like, oh, happy anniversary, love you, and just give that to her. And I, nor would I just find what was in my pocket and be like, hey, here's 87 cents in a paperclip. Like I would intentionally want to plan things out and be able to give that to her because of the, the intimacy with which we have as a married couple. But with that said, I also talked about how, you know, our time of tithes and offerings is not just something where we just pull out whatever's in our pocket and, and give it to God. And, and so I joked last week about how, you know, we're not here to, uh, you know, this isn't something where you just look in your pocket and drop in uh, a Starbucks gift card. And then I said, well, you know, we take it, but we don't want that, right? When we were counting the offering last week, uh, there were two Starbucks gift cards and two Jamba Juice gift cards. And between the two of them, I think total, or sorry, between the four gift cards, I think it totaled around $12, $13. So it wasn't a lot, but uh, thank you for taking me very literally. Um, I, have to, I have to assume you received that, that well. It was tongue in cheek. It was, it was a fun thing. My wife's like, was they serious? I'm like, no, I don't think so. Um, but this week, as we land on the idea of minus and the symbol here of, of talking about debt, you know, some of us, we have humorous examples of debt um, or what we think of with debt. It's kind of more lighthearted. It's not something that's really heavy. A humorous example for me is that when I purchased um, Steph's engagement ring, her and I went to a Robbins Brothers uh, in Upland, California, Montclair, rather. We went there. She told me kind of which one she wanted. And so then I remembered it. At a later date, I went uh, took out a loan, purchased it. Um, I was t- like 20, 21 at the time, 21. So I didn't know that there was like rules of like how many months salary carried the number remainder four plus whatever the full moon is. Like, I don't know what the, uh, what the actual process was of how much a ring was supposed to cost. So I just, you know, I got this ring that she really wanted. And, and I remember she asked me after I gave it to her and you know, I proposed and she said, yes. And we ended up, um, talking about it. And she's like, oh, have you paid, you know, have you paid back the ring yet? And I was like, no, you know, I haven't yet. I have the money, but, um, you know, there's, there's no interest. So like, what's the rush? And she's like, that's not how it's staged, right? You recognize that you're going to have to actually pay money on interest at some point. I was like, oh really? I didn't know that. So, um, I, I learned early on one before we even married, I learned to listen to Steph at all times. (laughs) But two, just this idea of like, that's a lighthearted idea, but I just didn't understand what 
putting a loan out was or, or getting a line of credit or what debt looks like. And so I just thought, well, you know, the zero percent, it's not going to be an issue for me for, for a while. So I'll just take my time where instead he looked at it and it was a certain amount of time within which you had to pay it or else the interest would accrue. So it was just, it's just lighthearted and silly. But for many of us, when we think about debt, it's not lighthearted. It's not silly. It's not humorous. It's, it's something in which that has played a huge role in our lives or the lives of someone that we know and love. You know, uh, Steph and I, we had a friend who was, uh, when we went to uh, AP, we went to college, and our friend, her parents um, had really bad credit, and so they started opening up credit cards in our, in our friend's name while she was still young, and then destroyed her credit too. And so it became this thing where they just, they had bad credit, they would open up, they had um, several children, and one of them, you know, at least one of them they did this process with, which they would then overcharge, not pay it back, and then this friend was, you know, exiting college with this debt that they, that she did not accrue, but she was still responsible for. And, and it's just an example of, they might have some humorous ideas of debt or, or understandings of it, like I, just my naivety, and then you have these ones that are really difficult, that, that for many of us, maybe it's a debt that is uh, something that wasn't even your fault. It's something where there was um, a medical emergency or something. We had a friend who um, their firstborn uh, son had some medical situations, and so he was un- they were able to pay it off right away. And so there's this medical debt that accrued. And so that's something that's a debt, but that's a, that's a separate idea than what we're talking about today because we're looking at this idea of debt specifically in which we can easily try to make choices to fit in, to want the latest and greatest, whatever it may be, but it ends up becoming something that we almost feel this slavery, this captivity that we're yoked under this idea of debt. And so for us, our main point today is that when we subtract the slavery of debt from our lives, we are free to live in contentment and generosity. That when we subtract the slavery of debt. Yes, the actual debt itself, but also the slavery of being indebted to this, this this captivity that comes when we are so caught up in debt. When we subtract the slavery of debt from our lives, we are free to live in contentment and generosity. And so uh, I'm going to ask that uh, you start turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. We're going to get there in a few minutes. We're going to build the problem first, and 1 Timothy 6 is going to help us uh, look at the solution of what a life of contentment and generosity looks like. So I want you to have that ready for you when you get closer. But as we're talking about that, we're going to have a few verses that kind of dive into this idea of debt. What does it look like? What does the Bible have to say about being in debt? The first thing you have there is this idea of the slavery of debt. What does the Bible have to say about that? In, in Proverbs 22, 7, says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. We see this idea similarly in Deuteronomy 28. There's a section of blessings and curses that um, God basically has Moses have the people in this valley, and they talk about the blessings and curses. And if you obey God's commandments, then you will be one who is a lender, not a borrower, that you will have all these other blessings. But that was a specific one they talked about, that as someone who is following God's commands, you are not going to be the one in debt. You're going to be the one that's be able to give money to people and to bless people and to have generosity there. But the curse side of that, as you look in Deuteronomy 28 later on there, is this idea that 
If you disobey God's commandments, so you don't live in a way that he calls us to, then you will become the borrower, not the lender. And he also says that you will be the tail, not the head. In other words, this idea that you are not in charge, that you are the one that is indebted to somebody else. And it basically sums up this idea that we look at debt and it's, if you owe, you pay. You owe, you pay. So that's, the, that's this idea of slavery. There's something that talks about all the way in Proverbs 22, then all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, this idea of being enslaved to the lender. The borrower is enslaved to the lender. Now, that's kind of setting up the tone for, for uh, the biblical idea of debt a little bit, but let's look at the American side of just the reality of debt. So in your notes, the reality of debt, just how prevalent is debt in our society? Now, these... these uh, Figures I'm about to give you, I found online with Financial Peace University, so I don't, there wasn't a date, so I don't know if these are still accurate or if anything, they might be a little worse than they are here, but we look at different types of debt. So look at educational debt, looking at loans for colleges. It says that Americans own more than $1.2 trillion in educational debt. Evens out to about $29,000 on average, you know, kind of the average amount there per student. Uh, when it comes to uh, cars and, and debt that way, the average car loan is $30,000, and that's $500 approximately a month. The idea of wanting the latest and the greatest car, and so we live beyond our means, and we end up paying this large, large amount of money. We look at average credit card balance. is more than $15,000, and there are more than 1.4 billion open credit cards in the U.S., so just thinking about how prevalent debt is, how prevalent credit card debt is specifically, how insane marketers want to make us feel if we don't have the latest and the greatest, how somehow our possessions are what defines us, when rather it's who we are that defines us and whose we are. In fact, it's not what we own, it's who owns us that shows who we are. And that's, we can either be indebted to creditors or lenders, or we could be indebted to God himself. So we look at this idea that there are so many things, and again, that's not even including medical debt and things like that, but we look that debt is so prevalent. And so if you are not someone that's struggling with debt right now, then you know someone who is with these figures and recognize that it can feel like a slavery. It can feel like we are under a yoke from which there is no escape. It can feel like it is so overwhelming. But the other side of it is it can feel like it's just normal. That's just what happens. It's just how it is to be an American that, that is trying to live the American dream. And, and it just looks like it's a normal thing of life. So we see in Proverbs 22 and 26 and 27, they hit on this again. He says, do not be one who shakes hands and pledge or puts up security for debts. In other words, don't co-sign for somebody or don't uh, shake your hand and commit to paying what somebody else owes or what you committing to live beyond your means. Because if you lack the means to pay, as it continues, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Again, it's this idea of if you owe, you pay. If you owe, you pay. To the point in which even your, where you live, even the bed that you sleep on can be taken from you to pay back a creditor from whom you've borrowed. And so this reality is that, again, debt just seems like it's normal. It's just what happens. It's how you keep up with the Joneses. It's how you keep up with the latest and greatest. It's how you compare. It's how you find your identity. It's how you just find your hope. It seems normal, but 
to put it succinctly as Dave Ramsey does here, he says, let's face it, debt is normal, but who wants to be normal? Who wants to have a life connected to that type of normalcy? To the normalcy that says, oh, it's normal to be in slavery. That's fine. It's just, that's just how it is. Rather than saying, how can we get out of that? How can we escape the yoke of debt and that sort of slavery? How can we subtract the slavery of debt from our lives so we may be free to live with contentment and generosity? So the next step we're going to look at here is this idea of how to subtract debt. Now, I am not a financial guy. Um, this is not my, my, my strength. Um, I'm someone that uh, I've learned this. I took uh, Financial Peace University, and so the, this, this tool that we're going to talk about in a couple moments um, is not from me. It's from Dave Ramsey. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But how to subtract debt. So in order to kind of open up this idea, I want to share uh, about when I was in Thailand, in 2005, and we were, uh, we'd been in India for about three and a half weeks, and we had a couple days left before coming back to LA, and we were going to this island as a uh, Koh Samui, as a debrief. Um, I know it was rough, but we uh, ended up, I ended up burning myself horribly, like I, had a, like I fell asleep outside, just got sunburned like crazy. Um, but before that, we had this opportunity, something I'd never done before, I've never done since, where the seven of us on our team were able to actually have the opportunity to ride on top of an elephant. And so we rode on an elephant, and that's me in the red shirt, uh, the one who's clearly lacking a haircut. And I had this opportunity that I loved. It's one of the most unique feelings I've had in my life was to be barefoot and have my bare feet touching the top of an elephant's head. It just had this, like, it's just the rough skin, and, and it was so powerful, and um, it was just something that was such a unique experience to be sitting on top of the elephant's head, and um, we had the opportunity to be able to go on a little, a little walk there, and it was really, really fun. Now, there's a story that goes with how they train elephants, and, you know, this is a, an Asian elephant or an Indian elephant as opposed to the larger ones um, and African elephants with the larger ears. But they talk about how they train these elephants, and, and one of the ways in which you're, we're told that they train them is that from when they were a, a young baby, when they were just born, what they would do is that they would tie a rope either around their neck or around their ankle, and then they would attach it to a stake in the ground. And so they would attach it to a stake in the ground, they would drive it in deep, and at that young age, the, the elephant would try to fight and push and pull it out and, and try to get uh, free from it, but found out that they couldn't. And this would happen the next day. They would drive that stake into the ground, tie the rope, either around the neck or on the ankle, and they would, the elephant would again try to escape. And so they would do this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to the point in which the elephants just thought, well, there's no way that I can ever break free from this because I tried from the beginning and they had been trained to think that that stake in the ground with the rope was too strong because it was too strong for them when they were a calf, when they were a newborn. The same thing happens, though, is that when they grew up to be full grown, being able to you know, put me on their back size, when they were at that size, they still would often be stuck by that same rope and that same stake in the ground. Now, did they have all the power in the world to get out of that? Absolutely. They could have pulled that stake out of the ground and, and ran off and taken some trainers with them if they wanted, right? But they had been trained early on to think that this was too strong, that this captivity was too deep, and that there was no way to get out. 
And so because they thought that it was too strong and too deep and there's no way to get out, they just resigned themselves to their captivity and resigned themselves to saying, this is normal. And there weren't any elephants that asked, well, but then who wants to be normal? So we learn this idea that for, when it comes to financial debt, when it comes to, to things in which we are struggling with debt, we might just say, well, this is just how it is. We might just resign ourselves to the futility of fighting this off. We might just say, well, the only way for me to be able to pay off the debt I have on this credit card is to use this credit card to do it, not seeing how that just gets us deeper and deeper into the same predicament. We might say that it's one of those where we want to live beyond our means, and we may say we have a budget, but the budget is like pirate code from Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more just a loose set of guidelines rather than our rules. And instead of actually living according to that, we just kind of just let it, let it be to the point where we live beyond our means. So then we have to use credit cards to pay that debt. But then we don't have enough money to pay for that debt off, so then we put it on more credit cards. Then all of a sudden, we're seeing this captivity, this slavery, this yoke of debt that can weigh upon us. So we look at how to subtract debt and we look at how can we recognize that this may not be normal for others, but we don't want to live in that normalcy. And so I'm going to give you a tool really briefly. This is the first grade version of explaining it because again, I'm not, I don't have a financial background, but if you um, have any interest, you can look up Dave Ramsey and you can type in the idea of debt snowball is the name of the tool. It's the debt Snowball. That's the name of the tool, but I would also strongly encourage that you would look at uh, look into attending Financial Peace University. My wife and I, we did this um, early on in our marriage within the first year or so, and that really helped us to not start behind the eight ball with debt, but to be able to try to get ahead of debt. But with that being said, the debt snowball, I'm going to take a couple moments to try to explain it and kind of give a tangible ability, a tangible tool with which we can say, how do we subtract ourselves from debt? So here's what it is. The, de- the way the debt snowball works is that you do a budget. You find out how much extra money can you squeeze. If you stuck, stuck to your budget, how much leftover do you have? In this example here, we have $200 in the upper right-hand corner. That's the, that's the excess with which we can pay off debt. Now, what you do after that is then you write down all the lines of credit or all the different areas of debt that you have, starting with the smallest, and then building it up from there. And so for this example, the smallest one was that the balance was $450. It shows the interest rate. Um, and then the next one is $650. And then $1,600 and $1,800. So it builds up from there, smallest to largest. Then what you do is next to that, you write down the minimum payment for each one. Because like we said, if you owe, you pay. And so we look at what's the minimum payment so I don't default on that. But it's the, it's the least amount I can pay to make sure that I'm still able to move forward. And so we look at the minimum payment here. So then what you do in this debt snowball idea, again, that's kind of the simplistic way of explaining it, is you take that $200 that you've set aside because of your budget, and you said, I have this money set aside for debt. You would take that $200 and you would add it to the minimum payment for your smallest line of credit, your smallest debt that you paid. The reason you do that is because that way it's going to be the fastest one that you could get rid of. So what you do is you take that $200, and if you look at the new payment on the far right, you take the $200 from the top, the 50 from the minimum payment, and then 50 plus 200, your new payment is $250. So then you say, I'm going to pay $250 for the next couple months until that is paid off. With this debt of $450, it would only take a couple months. But then what you do is like, oh, great. You cross off that line of credit, that, you, that debt that you've completed, and then you celebrate by going and using your credit card more. No, I'm just kidding. What you do then is you take that same money, that $250 that you've already been dedicating to getting out of debt, 
You then add that $250 to the minimum payment for the next line of credit. That way, you're not, your budget is still strict. You're still living off the same amount that you had budgeted beforehand. But what you're doing is you are snowballing your debt. You are using the amount that you are paying off, that $250 from that first payment. Now it's done. We celebrate. We take that $30 from Dillard's, if that's a thing, and you say $250 plus $230. Then your new payment to Dillard's is $280 a month until that $650 is gone. And then you see the process, you go again, you go to the next line, 280 plus a minimum payment of 200, you get 480. So basically what you're doing is you're already spending money in the minimum balance for each one. You're already allocating the amount of money that you could set aside. And when you combine those two, you are snowballing your debt so that you're able to pay it off um, as quickly as possible while still living within your means. And then you cross those off. And then maybe if, if you still struggle with wanting to uh, use credit cards, maybe you have to cut those credit cards up. Or maybe you have to figure out another way to, to not get in that debt. But you work this system for however long it may take to get through all the ones that you list, you've listed out. And you're able to get out of debt. You're able to subtract debt. Again, that's really simplistic. I know that I don't understand all of it fully, but the system can and does work. And Financial Peace University would be a great tool and a resource and a study curriculum that could really help set us free in that regard. Because getting rid of debt is step two out of a seven-step process with that. So that's kind of the, that's the financial, that's the logistical, that's, that side of the message is now behind us, thankfully for me, because I'm trying to do my best here. So... That's the idea is subtracting debt. But the reason we want to subtract debt is so that we could be free to live lives of contentment and generosity. So we want to look at this idea of what is a life of contentment? And in order to answer the question of a life of contentment, we need to contrast what discontentment looks like, as we see in parts of 1 Timothy 6, which will be in a minute. And then what contentment looks like, as we'll look at a few other passages as well. So if you still have your Bible open to 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 12, we're going to go ahead and read that together. Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the only root of all kinds of evil. It is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So contentment or discontentment is this idea of recognizing that if we can have godliness with great contentment, that's great gain. But others are so eager to make money, so eager to have the latest and greatest. They're so eager to fit in and to keep up with the Joneses. They're so eager to say that what they own is what defines them rather than whose they are defines them. That they're so eager that they'll be willing to cut corners. They'll be willing to make sacrifices that are not wise sacrifices to make. They'll be willing to put credit card payments upon other credit cards. They'll be willing to take out loans when it's unnecessary to do so and unwise to do so. They'll be willing to live beyond their means in order to have this, hopefully, whatever this hole in their souls that they feel like they need to fill with something else other than Jesus, because that's the only foundation upon which we can build our lives. But many of us will try to fill that hole with something, with anything, and this discontentment can drive us to make these bad financial decisions, they can drive us to pierce ourselves with many griefs. They can cause us to wander from the faith because we think we need to keep working and never 
pour into our families, never pour into our faith because money is what truly provides security in our, in our false understanding. And we end up getting to the point where, yeah, we are living and piercing ourselves and hurting ourselves with many griefs because of our discontentment. And so what does contentment look like as a, as a contrast to that? I'm going to read from two, a couple of verses from Proverbs and a couple of verses from Philippians. Philippians, or sorry, Proverbs 30 says this, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That contentment is being good and faithful and excited with the daily bread. Contentment is this idea of saying, if I have too much, God, that I would be tempted to think that it was of my own strength, of my own volition, of my own abilities that I made this, and so I don't need you. I say, who is the Lord? But in the same way we talked about earlier, that everything is owned by God, and so he's the one who gave us the abilities to make money in the first place, and so instead of looking at someone saying, oh, that person is a, is a self-made woman or a self-made man, and the joke then goes, well, then what part of yourself did you actually make? Because God is the one who made us. He's the one who breathed us, uh, breathed life into our, our bodies. He formed us in a mother's womb. We did not make ourselves. But it's this idea of recognizing that because everything is owned by God, we want to add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God and recognize that, God, I don't want to have too much because then I'll, I'll feel like I might forget you. But I don't want to have so little that then I then steal and break your commands in order to dishonor your name. Give me this daily bread. If that sounds familiar, that's part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, to give us this daily bread. Philippians 4 continues the idea of contentment when Paul says, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So that Philippians 4.13 verse, that I can do all things through him who gives me strength, is couched in the context of contentment. It's couched in the context of recognizing that we can face any trial because we are content, knowing that whether we have the whole world at our beck and call or whether we are beckoning and call at everybody else's expense, that wherever it is, we can be content because God is faithful, that Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, that we recognize that he gives us our daily bread. He doesn't give us everything we want, but he can give us what we need for that day. And so a contentment is being okay with the daily bread and recognizing that we can learn that whatever the circumstances in, we trust in God and we don't look to the left or to the right. So that's a, a brief summary of this life of contentment. And then we look at this life of generosity. And we're going we're to jump down in 1 Timothy 6. We went to verse 12. We're going to jump down to verse 17. So we're going to read 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world. We'll stop there. Remember, we talked about on the first week of this series, this idea that not all, all of us might look to people who are richer than us and say, well, see, we're not rich because we don't have this many millions of dollars, or we're not rich because we're not in this neighborhood, or we're not rich because we're not in this tax bracket. But the truth of the matter is, is that when you compare us to everyone throughout all of human history, and you compare us to people right now in our current day and age who live on just a couple dollars a day, the truth of the matter is, is that you and I, we are the rich in this present world. We may not feel comfortable with that, but the truth is, that we are. So when, we're, when Paul is saying this to Timothy, 
He's saying this to us. So let's, let's start that over again. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So the note underneath the life of generosity for you to put down there is this idea that when our hope is in the right place, we realize that we are blessed to be a blessing. That when your hope is in the right place, we realize that we are blessed to be a blessing. That we recognize that if we put our hope in money, and just like we did that very first week, you cannot serve both God and money. They are not equals. But if we put our hope in money, this talks about how we're going to pierce ourselves, that we're going to be eager to make money, and we're going to fall into a root of all kinds of evil, that we're going to fall short. We're going to get into debt. We're going to have the struggle in which it's so uncertain. Whereas that's the hope in money. And so if we always have our hope in money, then it's going to be really hard for us to be content with what we have. And it's really going to be hard to be generous with the extra that we have with the surplus because we're going to want to hoard it and hold on to it. But if our hope truly is in God, that he is faithful and that he can provide, that the Lord provides Jehovah Jireh, if that's what we rest our foundation upon and we build our house upon the words of Jesus and not on the shifting sand, as Matthew 7 talks about, if we so do that, then we'll recognize that what we have is all been given by God. And so that we can give to others out of the excess, out of the surplus, and that we can be generous, not to be arrogant towards money, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, but to be generous and willing to share with others, to be able to have an impact on other people's lives. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I think about, man, I would love to be able to to bless so-and-so person with their story and what they're struggling with, but I'm not able to. And, And for some of us, maybe that's because of debt. For some of us, it's because we're trying to stick to that budget. For some of us, whatever it may be. But what would it look like if we didn't have the restraints to say, I can bless this person and not as a lender expecting something back, but as a giver expecting nothing in return. That we would be like God in the heart of a giver. And so when our hope is in the right place, we realize what God had told to Abraham in Genesis 12, that he would be blessed not to hoard the blessing. He would be blessed to be a blessing to others so that the nations would know about the love of God through Abraham and his descendants is that for us, the nations would know out of the contentment and generosity with which you and I live. And that may only be able to happen for some of us once we escape the slavery of debt. If you're saying, well, I'm in debt right now. And and you talked last week about tithes and offerings and Dave Ramsey's advice. What he says with that is that he would encourage us to still give the tithe, the 10% to the local church, then pay off the debts. And then once you have all that money left over, once that debt snowballs and you have that figure on the bottom, and then you are able to build that ability to go and give to others to use it that way. So is there a question of, should we still tie? Should we still give 10% to God? Even when we're in debt, we still want to give God the honor so we could show him that we trust that he is faithful and that he will provide our daily bread. He is Jehovah Jireh. But with that being said, we recognize that we've been blessed to be a blessing. So maybe for you, as we close this morning, maybe for you, uh, some of the, some of the, uh, the younger people in the congregation today, hopefully for you, you hear this message and it, and it can stir within you the desire never to fall into this overwhelming debt. That for some of us who are a little bit further along in our journey, 
wouldn't it have been amazing to not have been in the series of debt if we had made, learned things when we were younger that could have freed us from this when we're older? So maybe for the younger people, it's, it's this idea of recognizing that what do I need to do to not have to be in debt? How do I live within my means? How do I grow in that area so this doesn't hold me back and I don't feel the slavery of debt? For some of us, we're already in debt. We're already struggling. We're already figuring this out. Maybe the, the next action step for you over the next couple of weeks to a month, whatever it may be, is maybe you just need to start looking at that debt snowball idea. Maybe you just need to start looking at the areas in which that you have debt or areas, things that you have to pay back, write it out, starting with the smallest first, figure out what the minimum payment is, and then slowly but surely use a budget that this is my amount, stay within that budget so that amount can be allocated towards debt and then allowing that to build so you can slowly but surely start to get out from underneath that yoke of slavery, of debt and being indebted. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're on that path and you're still trying to figure out next steps. Maybe the best thing is to figure out about Financial Peace University and, and um, there's a potential, I know someone who potentially might be willing to, to lead someone from, someone from our church leading that through um, uh, at some point in the near future. And if that happens, I would let you know. But um, that's something that Financial Peace University are great tools. And maybe you want to do that. Maybe you want to go talk to a Christian financial advisor who recognizes your goals aren't just to pad your bank accounts to build bigger barns, but it's also to be able to help build God's kingdom. So we look at this idea Maybe that's where you are this morning. But I want to take a moment as we close to look at this idea of the, the elephant and the stake again. This idea of the elephant that, is, that was fought off and tried to pull back against the stake inside the ground and was just unable because the, around their neck or around their ankle, they were just fought off when they're younger. They don't even try when they're older. You know, there's a, a rabbi who wrote on this specific illustration, this idea of, of, of elephants and how they had chains around their ankles. And he said it this way. What I've learned about life is that, the, is that most often the real difference between personal slavery and freedom is simply vision. It is recognizing that it is ours to choose that the chains with which we are held are mostly in our minds and not around our ankles. So if we have the mindset that debt is normal, and so that's just what we're going to do, and we're resigned to that in the same way that an elephant is resigned to being stuck to a chain or it's stuck to a piece of rope, if we're just resigned to that and we don't have the vision of how to get out of that, then we're just going to be stuck in this slavery of debt. And it's just going to be a slog for all of our lives. But if we have the ability and the vision to be able to get out of debt, and even if right now you're dead and you're not, it's hard to make ends meet and you're in this place where all this talk about finances, it's like, how do I have enough to pay back because right now I'm struggling, then it's just being wise with what God has given you now and creating a budget and sticking to that and not living beyond your means. If that means you need to downsize where you live because that'll allow you to, to be able to have more money to pay off these debts and to be able to give later, then maybe that's what we need to do. Or maybe we need to sell things. Whatever that is, there's ways to get out. But if we're so resigned to that slavery that we don't even try anymore, then we're going to live like an elephant stuck to a chain with which there's a power to get out at any moment. But we need to have that ability to recognize that it's our choice to be able to move forward. But I want to continue on that elephant and the stake idea. But I, but I, want, to, I want to take the financial idea. This whole, our main point today is this idea when we subtract the slavery of debt from our lives, we are free to live in contentment and generosity. I want to hear that, talk about finances. I want to take that and I'll put that over here for the next few moments as we close. Leave that here. Over here, I want to think about what would it look like if we truly lived lives of contentment and generosity. Like if there was something where 
there was freedom in our lives. And I don't even just mean freedom to give. Yes, freedom to give. But remember, we're leaving that portion over there. So this portion here, what would it look like for us to believe what 1 Corinthians 3.17 talks about, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What would it mean if we really believed that Galatians 5 talks about how we've been set free? What would it mean if we really believed, first, uh, sorry, John 8.32 when it says, I am the truth and the truth shall set you free. What would it mean if we really believed that God wants to set his people free and let his people go just like he did with the Egyptians out of, or the, sorry, the Israelites out of Egypt? What would that look like? What would it look like to live a life of generosity and contentment? What would it look like to recognize that, that we're not held back by the things we think hold us back? What would it look like in the same way that Maybe if you were to do a debt snowball one day and look at all those different areas in which you had debt, what would it look like? Because that tells us, like we've said before, if you owe, you pay. There's debt, you owe it, you pay it, you let your yes be yes, let your no be no, you owe, you pay. What would it look like if you were to take a piece of paper and you were to write out all the sins, the struggles, the temptations, the heartaches, the wounds, the ways you've wounded, the brokenness. What would it look like if you took moments and you wrote those out? And then you looked at that, that debt and recognized that we're no longer held to committing those same sins that we had committed before. We're not held to falling into the same temptation that maybe we've held in before. That we too, because of the power of Christ in us, that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives within those who believe and have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we are no longer like this baby elephant, unable and unable to get self-control enough to resist our temptations. That we have the power of God to be able to move forward and not be held back by our chains anymore. What would it look like if we looked at those sins and temptations and said, this is no more, not because I'm trying harder, but because I'm relying more. And what would it look like for us to list out all those things and recognize that instead of when it comes to our debt, that we have to pay things back, that when we are the borrower, that we have to pay the lender, that we are a slave to the lender, that you owe, you pay, that you have all this credit, says you owe, you pay, that when we have all these financial struggles, it's you owe, you pay. But what would it look like to look at that list of our sins and when Jesus would look at that and he said, yes, you owed, but I paid. The world says you owe, you pay your financial debts. But the greatest debt that you or I have ever incurred, the one to which we truly would be slaves to if not being able to be set free, is the, is the debt of our sin, that recognizing that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. We are committed to following Jesus Christ wholeheartedly because he looked at us and says, you owe, I paid. I've taken your sin as far as the east is from the west. I have taken that which has been crimson, your sin, and have made you white as snow. You owed, but I paid. So we are to live in that line of freedom. We are to live within that ability to recognize we're no longer held back by finances or we're no longer held back, more importantly, by our sin, like an elephant to the stake in the ground. But we can be free because the power of God has grown within us, that we are no longer baby calves unable to move forward, that we have been given the spirit of the Lord within us. And with the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. So may you and I, may we live with a spirit of 
not captivity. May we not have a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, self-control. And know where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you give us freedom. We recognize, Lord, that true freedom is anything but free. And so we recognize that, Jesus, you sacrificed everything so that we may have true freedom. That when our list of debts were written out, that you look at those and you said, you owed, but I paid. So now, Jesus, because of what you have done, and for those of us that have received that in our lives, we are now able to recognize that our righteousness, though they may be like filthy rags, that we have now experienced your righteousness. It's been given to us because of what you did on the cross, Jesus. And Father God, you look at us and you don't see guilty and sinner, but you see redeemed and son and daughter. So Lord, thank you for that freedom. And I pray that we would not live under the yoke of slavery any longer, but that we would live lives that we are free to have contentment and generosity. And so, Father, I pray that you would stir in hearts, that you would move in an incredible way, that you would guide us in this time into freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.